Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. In this episode, I talk with Will Hermes about his book, Love Goes to Buildings on Fire, Five Years in New York That Changed Music Forever, published in 2011 by Faber and Faber. The New York City that Hermes describes as existing in the mid-70s is overrun by crime, teetering on the brink of bankruptcy and seen by outsiders and insiders alike as a place beyond hope. This is an atmosphere in which artistic creativity can ferment and grow, and fermentation and growth is exactly what occurred in New York City's many music scenes during this time. Punk rock took hold, for instance, as the Ramones, Blondie, the Talking Heads, Patti Smith, and the Heartbreakers made music out of the ashes of the New York Dolls. Players like Rashid Ali, Jamil Moondock, and Harry Whitaker helped create a free jazz scene based in the city's lofts. A coming together of Puerto Rican and Cuban cultures resulted in a vibrant salsa scene featuring the likes of Hector Laveau, Ruben Blades, and Celia Cruz. Anthony Braxton, Philip Glass, and Laurie Anderson were using new technologies to change people's minds about avant-garde orchestral music. Hip-hop began in earnest, with DJ Cool Herc and Africa Bombada battling for supremacy in the city's open spaces. And disco, for better or for worse, beat its way into the legs of New York's dance kids with DJs like Nicky Siano and Michael Capello playing the sugar-sweet sounds of Donna Summers for all to make their booties groove. In Love Goes to Buildings on Fire, Hermes paints an exhaustive picture of a place and time in decay and yet vibrant, in denial yet in affirmation, in death yet being be reborn, lost yet found. He paints this picture by detailing the stories of the artists, places, and events that made things move in New York City in the mid-70s. In the end, Hermes shows New York for what we all want it to be, a city of boundless creativity from which we all benefit. Will Hermes lives in New Paltz, New York, which is where I reached him for this interview. Hello, Will, and welcome to New Books and Popular Music. Hi, Matt. Good to be with you. Great. Um, why don't we start with a little biography? Tell us, tell us about yourself, please, where you're from, that kind of thing. Well, I grew up in Queens, New York, one of the five boroughs. It's uh, known as being one of the most diverse boroughs, but I was also out towards the eastern side of the borough near Long Island, and uh, that sort of placed me in the middle of two different cultures growing up. There was the culture of Long Island, which was a really suburban culture. People could live out on island on Long Island and not spend any time in New York City. Um if they didn't want to, um, or in the other direction, you could go to Manhattan, which is, of course, the great cultural magnet of North America. And growing up in Queens, I definitely found myself more drawn towards the city. I uh, was pretty good about attending school, but if uh, I ever did decide that I needed to play a little hooky with my friends, inevitably it would be to jump on the E or the F train and ride it down to West 4th Street 
in Greenwich Village and or maybe to Times Square and uh, just get out and wander, wander around, see what we could find. And and so you grow up a little bit, right? <laughs> yeah, um, I spent my college years in uh, in upstate New York, um, never too far away from the city. So even when I was going to college, I was taking trips down even in midweek to catch a concert at the Ritz or at CBGB's or what have you. Mm -hmm. And music was always a huge thing for me growing up. My parents got me a transistor radio when I was seven, and I would listen to that for hours in the basement, um, just a little AM radio with a 9-volt battery. And uh, I would listen to broadcast so long that they would start repeating songs and that's when I knew it was probably time to turn off the radio and go up and have something to eat. <laughs> but uh, I would go to shows when I could. Um, I would shop for records. I became a, a, a record collector, I guess you'd say, pretty early on. I would, uh, I would get on my bicycle and I would ride to uh, the Music Box, which was a little mom and pop record store not far from my house. Or if I was feeling more ambitious, I would ride my bike, uh, oh, I guess about 10 or 12 miles to Corvette's, which was a department store and was known for selling vinyl LPs very inexpensively. You could get them for new records with $3.99 um, or three for $10.00. And inevitably, I would take my allowance every week and spend it on records. And if I took a trip out there, I'd ride out along the Long Island Expressway and try not to get hit by a city bus um, while I was jockeying for position on the street because there were no bike lanes back then. And uh, I'd get to the store and buy the latest records, go home and pour over them, which uh, I never really thought was preparation for a future career but uh nevertheless i devoted a lot of time to it and then when i got to college i got involved with college radio and with creative writing and journalism those were in addition to being a big music fan i was i was a big reader um, of comic books and science fiction and later literary fiction and those were sort of my dual passions going through going through school i spent a lot of time doing college radio in the in the early 80s and it was a it was a it was a good it was really a good education i learned pretty much all i To rephrase, I, <laughs> I, I, I pretty much, I, I, I developed the base, my base of knowledge of popular music and jazz and modern classical music and international music from doing college radio because the school that I went to, uh, SUNY Binghamton, 
um, the State University of New York at Binghamton, had a college radio station whose call letters were WHRW. And that was an FM station with about a thousand watts of power back uh back in i guess it was the late 60s or early 70s um when people were still unconvinced that this new format of fm radio was going to be of much interest to anyone um other than you know educators maybe um i guess it was the uh looked at as being something like the c-span of uh of radio am radio ruled and um in new york state uh nelson rockefeller just started giving frequencies away to colleges who were interested in doing something with them and so suny binghamton got a thousand watt frequency to broadcast in uh the southern tier of new york state um which uh, gave them a pretty big reach so they were a, they were a pretty legitimate radio station right out of the gate by virtue of their power um and they also had a number of people who were very serious about creating a record library there and when i was going to school they had tens of thousands of vinyl LPs, all organized according to genre um, and alphabetized and really kind of taken care of by this one guy who's, who really became a lifelong friend of mine, Ron Drum. Um, and I was very methodical about going through that record library, going through the folk collection from A to Z, going through the jazz collection from A to Z, going through the 20th century classical collection from A to Z. And, uh, and from there, um, I did a little work in commercial radio, which I didn't like so much because those jobs, you were really told what you had to play at what time. Um, and it was not so much fun. And the writing thing was something that I kind of did as a as a hobby slash second job until uh, my my uh, my graduate academic work eventually uh, had to take a back seat to my um, my freelance journalism work and uh, and I started I started writing for. Um, for music publications, small music publications, and uh, I went to grad school for for uh, creative and professional writing, ultimately in Minnesota, and uh, wound up getting my first job at a newspaper, which was City Pages, the uh, alternative newsweekly of the Twin Cities, which was kind of modeled on the Village Voice, and ultimately was purchased by the Village Voice parent company and the great... Uh, um, the great spate of alternative Newsweekly acquisitions during the 90s. But uh, that, was, that was my first job where I was able to write about music and actually get paid. And it seemed like this could actually be more than just a sort of hobby or sideline. And uh, my, uh, my PhD track... Uh, English studies took a backseat to that job, and uh, it's <laughs> stayed in the backseat ever since. Um, 
although uh, although I have certainly taught over the years um, and enjoyed it uh, enjoyed it greatly. I'm still doing a lot of uh, magazine and newspaper work as and radio work as the the, the center of my uh, my professional life. Um, and while I've done a book before, I worked on an anthology of writings for Spin Magazine on their 20th anniversary about you know, seven, eight, nine years ago. And that included a lot of my own writing. But even though I, I shepherded the book through the production process, uh, Love Goes to Buildings on Fire is my first book. It's a solo project. And uh, it, was, uh, it was super fun. It took me a long time to write uh, about... Uh, about I guess six years all told between um, kind of initial conception and research and interviews um, and publication, but uh, it's it was a it was a fun path and the material that I was researching uh, brought me back to New York in the seventies um, when I was growing up and so it was a uh, it was kind of a personal education as well as a historic one uh, the process of writing the book. Mm-hmm. So, so the book, well, the book is organized around the years 1973 to 1977. Uh, just, just a moment ago, you said you're doing college in the early 80s. So, how personally involved were you in the different scenes you discuss in these in the 70s? Well, I was not that personally involved, and part of the fun of researching the book was getting to experience. Uh, secondhand, um, some of the things that I missed because I was just a little bit too young. Um, the idea of the book came about when I was writing a story back in 2005 uh, about the Patti Smith album, Horses, because it was uh, the 30th anniversary of that album, and uh, Patti Smith and her band were performing the album from front to back, at a concert at the Brooklyn Academy of Music. And that album, which came out in 1975, um, the year I turned 15, was an incredibly important album for me personally, just as a music fan. It, uh, it really opened, my, opened me up to a lot of ideas and um, just a kind of cultural things that uh, growing up in suburban Queens I hadn't really been tapped into. So I contacted the Village Voice. They gave me the assignment and I spent an afternoon having tea with Patti Smith and interviewing her about the making of the record and then speaking to Lenny Kay on another occasion, her bandmate and band leader, about the making of the record. And I did sort of a short oral history just between the two of them. And it, it struck me that, that this, uh, this period was not, uh, not as much as a, of a clean break with the 60s as some people tend to think when they write about disco, when they write about hip-hop, when they write about punk rock. Um, it really was in many ways, a continuation of the creativity and vision of the 60s. But 
by a generation of, of young artists who sort of saw the 60s kind of sputter out and wanted to pick up the reins and do something on their own, kind of remake it, um, but using a lot of the same energy. Patti Smith and Lenny Kay talk about being incredibly inspired by artists of the 60s that people don't necessarily connect punk rock to if they're to be um, regarded as two of the important inventors of punk rock, they pay um, powerful tribute to Jimi Hendrix, to the Rolling Stones, to the Doors, to John Coltrane, Albert Eiler. Um, these artists were very, very inspirational to them. And I think that was the case across the board in the arts during the mid-70s. Um, you had cheap rents in New York. You had the the wild energy of the '60s, um, which, as a sort of a cultural moment, um, had sort of spun out. Partly because the economy crashed, partly for a lot of reasons. Um, but it was uh, it was a little bit of a perfect storm that you had. You had a lot of young artists in New York at a time when the economy was very bad. The job prospects were not looking so great if you were a kid just finishing college. Um, but you could live in New York City really inexpensively. Just for a couple hundred dollars, you could you know, get yourself a loft space, pile some of your friends in, get a half-baked job for a few hours a week, pay your rent, and then spend the rest of the time uh, pursuing something more creative, which might not pay dividends, but it was fun. Um, and my involvement at the time growing up in Queens, it wasn't until the end of the period that I write about, um, 75, 76, 77, which were my high school years where I began getting into the city and seeing shows. I went to CBGB's and saw television, um, after having seen some concerts at Madison Square Garden and, you know, listened to all the great British rock bands of that era, um, whether it was Black Sabbath or... Led Zeppelin or Deep Purple or Yes or Emerson, Lake and Palmer and seeing television at CBGB's was a revelation to me because I'd never seen a band in a bar before. I thought that rock bands somehow they were just, you know, it was like some God jumping out of the head of Zeus or something <laughs> that they just were formed, fully formed and started playing arenas. The idea that you could see not just a legitimate rock band, but a really great rock band, and I thought television, by the time I saw them, were remarkable. Um, I could see them in this dank little bar was was really instructional. It, uh, it definitely demystified the music-making process to an extent. Um, and it made, you know, I think punk rock was really about that was just saying like, you can make art. Art is not just made by, you know, people who are these experts, um, who are virtuoso players and, um, are playing huge arenas. You can put together a band, 
play some shows for a bunch of friends, get better, um, and maybe by virtue of your ideas, if you don't necessarily have the the virtuosity in your playing that uh, certain players have, um, you could come at it with a passion or with a creative vision that really distinguished what you did and made it important, certainly as important as somebody who can play 16th notes really fast. So, so, so you, you write about um, a number of different uh, musical genres, if I can use that term loosely, rock, free jazz, salsa, hip hop, disco. Is what you're, are you writing about the, the creation of scenes? Are these different scenes? And if, if, if so, what is, what is a scene? Well, to an extent, it's the story of, um, of the beginning of these, these genre slash scenes. But, um, but there have always been music scenes. Um, it's, you know, ultimately, music is the voice, is an artistic voice of a culture. And subcultures crop up, and they develop their own musical voices in the same way that they might develop um, slang in conversation. And what was unique about this period in New York was that, again, by virtue of this perfect storm of circumstance, the end of the 60s, certain economic factors, um, uh, some je ne sais quoi of history, um, there was an incredible amount of invention going on in these scenes. Um, people were really doing things in a different way. Disco was really R and B. It was sixties R and B and soul. It was it was groove music um, that existed in one form or another before disco culture began. But uh, what began as uh, private parties of people putting together high-quality sound systems so that instead of having a, a live band play a dance, you could play records through very powerful amplifiers and very high-quality speakers um, and using lights and atmosphere and sometimes certain mind-altering substances, you could create a musical experience that didn't involve live musicians, that just involved uh, a, a music selector, a DJ, um, playing certain songs, maybe changing little bits of them using an equalizer to pump up the bass, drop out the high frequencies at certain moments in the song, um, and then sequencing songs in a way that could make an hour or two of music really feel like a journey or a story. That was something that n nobody had ever done before. And it wasn't even, you know, it obviously required some resources, but if you had a big loft space and you could get a bunch of people to pool in some money for refreshments and for a few people to work the door and uh, you could buy some sound equipment and some records, um, you could create something. Um, so, 
I, I guess in that scene, the, a, a scene was invented, but it was it was more like the the music cult. The the scene was something that was really there already, in a, in a sense. Um, and uh, and the, the the musical style sort of sort of followed that. And uh, loft jazz in New York City was uh, a very under underappreciated kind of iteration of improvised music um, and as to a certain extent been written out of the jazz history books um, the whole 70s jazz era which uh, was was involved in really radically reinventing the music both through jazz fusion jazz pop fusion which was always maligned by the kind of jazz cultural gatekeepers and the latter-day free jazz, which got labeled loft jazz because it was happening in loft spaces, um, was also kind of poo-pooed by quote-unquote serious jazz fans because it didn't swing or it didn't take place in the right venues. Um, the, this, was, this was a bunch of working jazz musicians who wanted to play music. Um, their interests maybe were more in line with uh, Latter-day Coltrane and Albert Eiler than they were with the, the earlier bebop musicians. Um, they couldn't get work in the clubs, so they decided they'd make their own clubs. They would get loft spaces that were pretty inexpensive. They could live there, and they could set up a stage and perform there. And that's what they did. And that also helped shape the music in turn. If you don't have a bar owner telling you that you need to play short songs so people will get up between songs to go to the bar and buy a drink, um, or you need to play a 45-minute set and then stop so that they can clear the house and uh, bring in another group of paying customers for the late show, um, suddenly the possibility that you could play a song that lasts 45 minutes in and of itself was an option. It was something that you could explore um, in a loft venue that, uh, that you couldn't explore in a club. So, again, in that way, the, the sort of the, the cultural seen the reality of how people were living wound up shaping the music more than the other way around. And this is seems true. I mean, this idea of space for all of these different genres that you're talking about, for instance, with this creation of, of hip hop DJs, you write about a lot of this is happening in an open public spaces, right? Right. Because up in the South Bronx, there were people weren't renting loft spaces, <laughs> um, and uh, the the kids who were you know basically doing their own version of inventing disco um, didn't have any indoor spaces they could work in, except um, in in certain cases they had the uh, maybe the rec room in their apartment building, as DJ Cool Herc did the first. Uh, hip-hop jam, um, as hip-hop historians like to place it, 
um, and I place it in the book was in the uh, was in the rec room of his apartment building. Other DJs, as well as Cool Herc, uh, rented space from the Police Athletic League, which was an organization which had uh, which had gymnasiums um, that were either part of the public parks system or part of uh, buildings that had you know come under the jurisdiction of the police department. Um, there were those venues, but then there were just kids who didn't have access to anything but um, but some sound equipment and wanted to create kind of an outdoor dance party. They would bring their equipment out to parks in the Bronx, and they would either run an extension cord out of somebody's apartment to power the sound systems, or the uh, the braver souls would actually open up lampposts um, with wrenches, um, take the wiring out of lampposts and wire them together into a, into an AC receptacle and power their sound systems off of that. So uh, they were able to, to put on you know what became fairly large parties um, powering large sound systems and uh, and inspiring, a lot of other kids in the neighborhood to maybe do the same thing. Um, it, it all happened, it all happened out of doors. Um, and it was, uh, it was pretty unique. Um, but it was, it was, this was also a function of the time because New York city was in such an economic crunch. The police department was smaller than it had been there were a lot of layoffs and there just were not enough uh there were not enough rule enforcers around to prevent people from doing some of the creative things they were doing which in modern day new york wouldn't happen because there would be noise complaints and the police would be there and they would shut it down but uh back then there was there were there were less people to shut these things down, um, and also a factor of a sort of overburdened police force was the fact that there was a lot of crime that was kind of hard to combat. And if people were making art, people were throwing hip hop jams in the park where it was kind of taking potential criminals off the street for a few hours in the evening so they could stand around and listen to music and not cause trouble. That was uh, looked at as being, um, that was a plus. So <laughs> even if the police did have a, have an inclination to sort of shut these things down, um, they very often saw that they were, you know, they were, they were, they were cultural happenings that it was worth their while to maybe even support um, mm -hmm. and encourage. So, Again, of these different genres, um, if any of them can, could be considered popular in the sense that a lot of people were listening and participating, maybe disco, but also salsa, right? We're, this was happening in, in much larger kind of venues and stadiums, wasn't it? Right. I mean, of, it's funny because of all the things that I write about in the book, um, the, the music making is pretty underground when people started in 73. I mean, you know. The New York Dolls were a pretty 
small rock band and the early punk bands, not many people were going to CBGBs in 74 and 75. And Steve Reich and Philip Glass were making very weird and obscure music um, by the standards of the time. Um, the loft jazz scene was pretty small. The salsa artists in 1973 got together for a legendary concert at Yankee Stadium. Um, and the irony is, is that in the mainstream press, nobody was really paying attention to this outside of the Spanish language community. And while they filled Yankee Stadium for a historic show, not many people knew it ever happened. And, uh, and researching the book, it was, it was really fascinating to, to, to find out how important New York was, uh, and New York salsa specifically, was to the Spanish language music world. It was really you know, kind of the center of things. The musicians who played in the South Bronx and in uh, Spanish Harlem um, as sort of day-to-day -day gigs would, you know, by, by 73, 74, 75, they were, they were flying around the world. They were playing in Africa. They were playing in South America. And they were greeted as superstars there. Um, but uh, the Fania All-Stars headlined a show at uh, Yankee Stadium. The New York Times gave them a couple of paragraphs in uh, the summer of 1973 because maybe they just didn't see it as uh, you know being significant to their readership. Did this, the, what about the Spanish language press? Well, the Spanish language press was not very well developed at the time. Um, and there was a kind of antagonism from what people told me and from what I read between the Spanish language press and the, the salsa scene because the Spanish language press really had its roots in Cuba. Um, a lot of the people who who owned and operated the radio stations and the papers um, were folks with you know, a certain amount of, uh, of, of income, as I understand it, who came over from Cuba, had resources, and um, they left after the revolution and uh, set up shop here in the States. Um, New York City Salsa is deeply rooted in Cuban music, but it was Cuban music made by immigrants from other Spanish-speaking countries, Puerto Rico most importantly, but also the Dominican Republic and also other parts of South America and Central America. And it was kind of a bastardized form of Cuban music, and it was kind of ghetto music. I think the, the reaction of Cuban music fans and the Cuban and the Spanish language media in New York um, at the time to salsa was sort of like the reaction of R&B and soul music fans to early hip hop. Like, what is this ghetto music? Our music has class. Cuban music is a classy music. It is a sophisticated music. Um, these guys are just street punks. They don't play it right. They're mixing it up. They're mixing up these these time-honored formats of Cuban bands with uh, 
with different instrumentation. They're bringing in, you know, Puerto Rican folk music instrumentation. Um, but, uh, but of course, the salsa guys understood that for this era, that what was required in this urban center, especially with the cultural embargo against Cuba, so you couldn't even get Cuban music in New York on vinyl, let alone see Cuban artists because they weren't allowed into the country, they weren't leaving their country, um, was a new kind of Spanish language music that was pan-Latin and that spoke to Cubans and Puerto Ricans and people from the Dominican Republic and um, incorporated elements of all the regional musics from the Spanish language Americas and the Caribbean. Um, so it, it was, it was kind of, it was kind of interesting to, uh, to, to uncover um, all this history of, the salsa scene in New York. Um, and it was really tempting to write an entire book, really, about the New York City salsa scene, because a good one really has not been written. Um, but because of the nature of the book I was writing, I, I had to sort of, uh, you know, pull back a little bit um, from, uh, from going on about, uh, about the salsa scene and digging even deeper than I did. But uh, mm -hmm. it's um, you know, fascinating era, incredibly rich, a lot of Music was made um, that is uh, you know, finally beginning to get reissued by uh, by record labels. Fania was acquired by the company Fania, which released uh, the lion's share of salsa music of the era. Has been bought and sold a number of times over the years, but they're finally owned by a company which uh, seems to be taking seriously the historical value of the music. And they're um, you know, reissuing the 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 albums in um, in, uh, in nice packages with proper liner notes and uh, you know good sound quality. So you know, hopefully the history will be less obscure um, when the next person comes along to 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 write about it. And staying on the on the topic of. Uh, immigration just for a moment to what extent was immigration influential in the the hip-hop scene because there's an obvious well i think an obvious connection between these outdoor dj things going on in new york and what was ha had been happening in say jamaica for at least a decade right oh absolutely yeah the, the the sound clashes that they would have in jamaica where you would get maybe two guys who both had sound systems setting you know one up at one side of a yard and one setting his sound system up at the other side of a yard. And they would sort of have like a DJ battle. Um, that was something that came over from Jamaica. And in fact, the father of New York city hip hop is a Jamaican immigrant. Um, cool Herc came over with his family as a, you know, as sort of a preteen. Um, and he was, uh, you know, he, he grew up going to Jamaican, you know, dance parties um, seeing these guys with the huge sound systems and really modeled himself on them. The thing that was different for him, though, which he found out pretty quickly when he started, you know, deciding to DJ parties, was he would play some of these, uh, you know, 
rock steady songs and early reggae songs uh, for the kids in the Bronx. And with the exception of maybe a few who were, who were West Indian immigrants themselves, they weren't interested in them. They, for them, that was their parents' music or somebody else's parents' music. Um, it was not American music. It was not New York music. It was strange alien music. They wanted to hear hard R&B. They wanted to hear funk. They wanted to hear soul. And they wanted to hear, you know, basically the African-American music of, uh, of, the, of the late 60s and early 70s. And that was James Brown. That was... Parliament Funkadelic, that was a lot of uh, the Motown artists who had sort of reformatted themselves during the course of the 60s to uh, adapt to the new, um, the new world where Motown songs did not rule the airwaves anymore. And uh, what happened in a lot of cases were... R&B songs that kind of mirrored the way rock songs became very long and had a lot of improvisational um, explore, exploring in the middle. Guitar, rock songs had guitar solos, drum solos. Um, you had R&B songs that were doing the same thing. But they tended to hold their rhythms tighter um, and be more suitable for dancing than uh, than some of the psychedelic rock bands who put together really long songs. Um, and songs like that, like Girl, You Need a Change of Mind, which some people acknowledge as the first great disco single, came out in... Actually, it didn't even come out as a single. It was, uh, it was, it was on a record um, by Eddie Kendricks, who used to sing with The Temptations. And it was a seven-and-a-half-minute song that had a really great percussion break um, that the dancers went wild for. And uh, that became um, a very important record for disco DJs. But it was also a record that I think, you know, was in the crates of a lot of hip-hop DJs. Um, the stuff coming out of Philadelphia, the R&B records made by Philly International, groups like MFSB. Um, they also had records that were popular with disco DJs and with hip-hop DJs because they had long percussion sections that uh, people could dance to. Um, and I think that was another kind of discovery, kind of startling discovery in researching the book. I guess something that... I, I knew but hadn't really taken note of before was that disco and hip-hop really grew from the same seeds. They, they just sprouted. Um, they just had shoots going off in different cultures. People might think that like disco and hip-hop are kind of mutually exclusive, and to an extent they grew up that way because young kids up in the South Bronx couldn't get into discos because they usually had dress codes. And so they decided to make their own parties where it was cool to wear sneakers 
and sweatshirts and jeans. Um, and uh, the, it, it had a different aesthetic flavor. And ultimately, as DJs invented breakbeats and rappers became more a part of it, it uh, developed into something very different than disco DJing. But at the beginning, you had guys like Grandmaster Flash, who, you know, he had a day job as uh, doing disco parties. Um, and then he would do his own kind of spin on DJing with, uh, with kind of scratching techniques and beat juggling. Um, they wouldn't go over in a disco, but uh, they went over for the younger crowds that he drew um, into the, the clubs that he began working in in the South Bronx, like Disco Fever, and of course also at the park parties where he could you know, pretty much do whatever he wanted as long as uh, the crowd was, um, you know, was happy. They'd, uh, they'd cheer him on. Why, why do you choose a talking head song for your title? Out of all the possible titles, you must be swimming around in your head. Well, it, it was funny. The, the title was something that uh, it actually came kind of late in the game. We had a working title that uh, I, I don't even think I came up with it. I think it might have might have been my editor who just sort of threw this out. We were working with uh, The Big Bang as a title. <laughs> it kind of got to the point that like, Pretty much everything that is modern music now, my argument in the book is, was very strongly shaped by what happened in New York during this five-year period. The problem with the Big Bang as a title is that um, a lot of astronomers had kind of already laid claim to it uh, as both a book title and a, and a, and a concept online. Um, and the title came from a Talking Head song which was never included on one of their albums. It was their very, very first single. And there was a certain poetry in it which I liked. Um, the song title was Love Goes to Building on Fire, or as David Byrne conceived of it initially, actually Love Arrow Building on Fire. And in terms of a book about people kind of making beauty, making art, you know, spreading love, if you will, um, in a city that was literally burning down, it was literally uh, being um, immolated by people who owned buildings that were abandoned and could not be rented and could only make money for them if they got arsonists to torch them and uh, then tried to collect insurance money for them, um, it, you know, the, the title just seemed to work for that reason. And, uh, and growing up in New York and watching the nightly news, I really remember where I lived in Queens, there weren't a whole lot of you know, arsons, but every night on the news, every single night, there was, you know, a five-alarm fire in the Bronx. There was a five-alarm fire in the Lower East Side. Um, always in poor neighborhoods. The fire department was really hard-pressed because given the economic situation of the city, they were very uh, understaffed and under-equipped. Um, and 
it was a it was really a, a, a kind of signature of the city at that time, um, and it was made clear to the nation and the world um, during the the World Series in 1977 when Howard Cosell famously uh, looked out over the South Bronx from his uh, from his announcer's booth in Yankee Stadium and saw a number of buildings burning. Um, during one of the games of the series and said, ladies and gentlemen, the Bronx is burning. And uh, that turned out to be the title of a, of a great book about New York in 1977 by Jonathan Maller. Um, but uh, it also kind of imprinted on, um, on uh, history, you know, the sense of like, this was a, this was a city that was really undergoing some, <laughs> some serious problems um, that, uh, really was sort of, um, you know, in some ways summed up by this image of a, of a, of a building in flames. So the long answer to a short question <laughs> coming up with a title, but, uh, you know, I, I thought it worked well. Now, to what extent are these different genres, these different scenes, uh, different mutually exclusive demographic groups for instance you know we might say punk rock was mainly a a, a white kind of music hip-hop african-american even even your uh this uh um philip glass and those people are kind of a, an upper class elitist kind of music how much are these mutually exclusive demographic and how and what what kind of uh sharing and integration was there between these scenes well it was they were mutually exclusive, and there was sharing. It was uh, it was interesting to find out um, some of the connections, um, and at the same time, the, you know, there were there there might have been I might have wished there were more, but it's the nature of New York City in that it has thousands of worlds happening simultaneously, side by side at any given point in history, any city block um, has a million, you know, maybe not a million, but has many worlds happening in it. So there were a lot of scenes rubbing shoulders in lower Manhattan, again, because of the cheap rent and the huge amount of space. And so certain scenes cross pollinated, um, there were discos in the area, CBGBs and Maxis, Kansas City, and other rock clubs were in Lower Manhattan. Um, Philip Glass and Steve Reich and Laurie Anderson and Meredith Monk were all making music in Lower Manhattan, um, and they had they they heard each other's music, and sometimes there was an influence sometimes there there wasn't the uh the the most um the most delightful kind of exchange that i came across in the book was with an artist named reese chatham who really came from kind of a classical you know art music background um and uh was working um, at NYU and had a job as a, as a harpsichord tuner. 
and he, uh, he he got a job working at the Kitchen Center, which was a sort of um, avant-garde art institution, um, where he started bringing you know different types of new music in, and still with with an orientation towards you know kind of modern composers, John Cage, Lamont Young. Um, but one night he had a friend who took him to CBGB's to see the Ramones, this young band, which he said um, he thought was really interesting. And they were pretty minimalist. And these guys were into, you know, the minimalist impulse in composition in the same way that uh, people were making visual art and sculptures, you know, using very, very straightforward ideas. Um, and Reese Chatham went down to CBGB's and saw the Ramones and was completely blown away. And as he tells the story, it was the first rock concert he'd ever been to, which considering he was in his mid-20s in the mid-70s, I kind of found hard to believe. But nevertheless, um, he got his head completely turned around by seeing the Ramones, and he decided that, hey, um, Steve Reich was very inspired by African music in his compositions. Philip Glass was very inspired by Indian music in his compositions. Reese Chatham saw the Ramones and he said, that's going to inspire my music. And for much of the rest of his career, he worked with electric guitars. And uh, he actually had an influence not only in the classical music and art music community, um, where like guitars are no longer so alien, but he also had a strong influence in the rock music community, both uh, Thurston Moore and Lee Rinaldo from Sonic Youth um, began playing music in Reese Chatham's group. And, uh, and they went on to form Sonic Youth and, uh, in turn, had a great influence on on rock bands that came that came afterwards. What was happening up in the Bronx and in Spanish Harlem, um, hip hop and salsa were, by virtue of geography and um, and certainly ethnicity and race um, and uh, by extension economics. Um, were scenes that were kind of kind of self-contained for a certain amount of time, um, but the the salsa musicians were usually the the more ambitious ones were very into jazz, and there was a lot of um, there was a lot of cross pollination even going back to the forties and the fifties um, and the sixties with people who played Latin music. Were also playing jazz, Dizzy Gillespie and Chano Pozo, um, you know, creating Cubop, which was Cuban music, kind of, you know, mixing it up with bebop and uh, the Machito Big Band, which would play um, for mambo dancers at Roseland in the uh, in the fifties and sixties, um, had players who, you know, who love to play jazz. And there was a, an ongoing series at the Village Gate in Lower Manhattan 
um, that would bring a lot of the salsa musicians down um, to play jazz and would bring a lot of jazz players to, you know, work on, on their sort of fast Latin changes. And it was called Salsa Meets Jazz. And that was a scene that was, you know, very influential among jazz musicians who were playing in the loft jazz scene because loft jazz was characterized by nothing so much as a desire to build all of the vernaculars of popular music into an, a context of improvisation where it didn't really all have to be based on, um, you know, kind of bop era theme and variation. You could, you know, bring electric instruments in, you could bring Latin rhythms and congas and all other sorts of stuff in and, you know, just throw it all in, mix it up and see how it, how it comes out. And, uh, when I interviewed David Byrne, David Byrne told me that he was, he was a huge fan of the Salsa Meets Jazz series at the Village Gate. He would go there very frequently. Um, you might not hear a salsa influence in the Talking Heads specifically, but by the time they made the album Remain in Light, where they had um, a few percussionists and a couple of drummers, um, there, was, yeah, there was definitely a Latin flavor there. And years later, David Byrne made an album, Ray Momo, which featured all the greats or many of the greats of the New York City salsa scene. Willie Colon was on that record. Celia Cruz was on that record. Um, so there, there, were, there were connections um, in different ways. And of course, Blondie, uh, another band like Talking Heads who came out of CBGBs, they, uh, they wound up, ironically enough, having the, the, first, the first real hit song um, maybe it's a number one song, the first rap number one on radio, uh, the song Rapture, whether you consider that a real rap song or not, um, that came because Chris Stein um, and Debbie Harry and the other people in the band um, connected with some of the uptown hip-hop DJs. Um, Fab Five Freddy and uh, Africa Mabata began coming downtown to play at, at certain clubs, um, Mud Club and later the Roxy Roller Disco. So cross-pollination, you know, started happening um, kind of after the period I write about. Um, but, uh, but some of it was happening during that period, too. The last genre I want to ask you about wasn't a music genre at all, but you, you drop in here and there throughout the book uh, graffiti art. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, well, graffiti art was always considered as part of hip-hop culture. I mean, as was breakdancing, um, as was DJing, as was rhyming. And it seemed to me that it was especially emblematic of kind of creating art under duress with limited means, um with perhaps not a heck of a lot of formal schooling um, and doing something that had never been done before, something that was really revolutionary and that, that wound up transforming the culture of the world. Um, and I really feel that graffiti art did that. 
Um, and it, it came about in the city uh, from kids who had a, an impulse towards visual art, also had an impulse towards uh, risk-taking and troublemaking. Um, but uh, the New York City school system, like the police department, like the fire department, was really suffering a huge budget crunch. And as always happens in any education system, when the budget crunch comes, you know, the art programs and the music programs are the first things to go. Um, sadly enough, when, you know, <laughs> an argument could be made that they should be the last things to go rather than the first things. But um, from my research, and I write about this in the book, there was, in many New York City public schools, next to no art education because the number of art teachers had dropped from a high in the 60s of maybe you know 900 um, throughout the five boroughs school system to something closer to 200. Um, so you might have an art teacher only in the school one or two days a week, and then they would travel to another school. Um, the art requirements were changed uh, so that in some schools, all you needed to graduate from high school was one class, not even in art making or studio art, but art appreciation. So kids weren't learning how to make art, but they still had the impulse to make art. And up in the Bronx and in other parts of the city, kids began by just sort of writing their names on walls, on trains, it's kind of like tagging their neighborhood just to let people know, you know, I live in this neighborhood. This is my turf. Um, sometimes there were gang connections. Sometimes there weren't. But uh, that sort of basic impulse of wanting to mark your territory um, ballooned because of people's creative vision. And first people would write their names in large form letters um, instead of just using a magic marker, then people started using maybe a couple of colors, um, then a few colors. People would, you know, stockpile spray paint, um, and then suddenly the the letters became 3D. And then people ran out of walls, and they started writing. They were doing some writing inside of the subways, but then people got the idea. If you could get into the subway yards late at night, you could do paintings on the subway cars, and the next morning, the trains would roll out, and you could see your name rolling all over the city, um, broadcasting your identity in a way. It's kind of like grabbing a microphone at a hip-hop party in a way, um, or getting up on a stage in a club. Um, you're, you know, you're declaring your identity in a creative way. And the period that I write about was specifically when New York graffiti writers were getting ambitious in an unprecedented way that they were not only signing their names on the side of cars, not only signing them in three-dimensional letters, but drawing scenes around them and growing these murals to a point where they would cover not only the entire side of a subway car, but in a couple of instances that I write about, covering the entire length 
of a subway car, like maybe eight or 10 cars um, with a mural on each car from corner to corner, top to bottom, um, which is pretty incredible considering that these kids, and most of them were kids, they were in their you know, teens and maybe 20s, um, were doing this in a, at night in a cordoned off train yard when there was a possibility of getting popped by transit police and arrested, um, and also of stumbling across a third rail and getting electrocuted. So it was incredibly dangerous to do this, um, and yet kids did it. And it, uh, it, was, it was another thing, kind of like the burning building image, that growing up in New York during those years, it just seemed to really be emblematic of the city during that time. Um, the city's response to this graffiti art was, this is an outrage. We have to clean these trains off and we have to increase interdiction and stop these kids from putting graffiti on the subways. Um, but the best of the graffiti artists' work were incredibly beautiful and they actually made the trains look far better than they would have otherwise because there wasn't any money to put new subway cars on the line either. So most of these subway cars were really dilapidated and um, pretty ugly to look at. So they were, they were arguably beautifying the environment in a lot of cases. And, uh, and, and it was kind of nice to just sort of salt the stories of the graffiti artists through the book um, along with the, uh, the people making music. Uh, it was kind of a visual, uh, visual analog things i think mm -hmm. so why do you choose 77 to stop what is there why well i started in 73 which may also seem like an odd place to start but it seemed to me that the 60s um was a party that nobody wanted it to end so it didn't really end until maybe 72 um the creative period that i talk about in the book was really about young people inventing new forms of art, transforming art. Um, and these transformations took hold. Um, and by 77, it seemed to me, in addition to making a you know, somewhat neat five-year period, um, it was also a period where these things were suddenly mainstream, were receiving mainstream acknowledgement, had mainstream profile. Um, Saturday Night Fever um, came out uh, in December of 1977. So disco, which began as, you know, this sort of, um, you know, culture that, that grew up in small clubs in lower Manhattan, mostly gay clubs, mostly gay male um, dance clubs that were more of a membership-only sort of thing. Um, had now ballooned into major motion pictures and uh, places like Studio 54 that were, you know, uh, world famous. Um, the New York punk rock scene had been imported to England, reformatted in a way that, uh, that, that transformed it um, into something different than it was in New York, then came back. And then kind of shot all around the world. Um, by 77, all of the, all of the new, important New York acts that came up during that era 
had put out either their first records or were a few records in. Um, Talking Heads came out with their first record in 77. Um, Blondie um, had their first record in 66, had their second in 77. Um, the Ramones were a few records in. And the, uh, the loft jazz scene was beginning to peter out because rents were going up in Tribeca and in Soho. And you couldn't really keep going by putting on jazz shows for small audiences and charging people $2 a head. Um, so that was sort of, that was sort of fading. Musicians were sort of choosing other avenues. Philip Glass and Steve Reich had done their sort of magnum opuses of the time. Um, music for 18 musicians in Reich's case and uh, Einstein on the beach in Glass's case. And they were, you know, no longer struggling guys putting on, you know, co afternoon concerts um, in their loft spaces, but they were getting commissions from uh, progressive arts organizations around the world. Um, salsa scene was beginning to fade. Uh, the Dominican um, cultural influence was coming on. Merengue was becoming um, a more powerful music among Spanish language New Yorkers. So that uh, was kind of, you know, it was kind of on the decline. And hip-hop um, was about to land on record. Um, so that was sort of, you know, it was kind of the end of its, its sort of nascent period. Um, and it would go on, obviously, to take over the world. Um, so there was, there were all those factors, um, and the fact that I wanted this to be a, a book that people could sit and read that had a number of narrative threads that could be woven together in a way that it could be read the way you read a novel. Um, and it seemed if I went on much longer, um, it would just become a doorstop and more of a reference book than actually, a you know, a narrative um, piece. So I, I really wanted to have my cake and eat it too. I wanted to write a book that 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 that, that preserved a lot of history and that you know brought a lot of things to light um, that would be of value from a historical perspective. But I also wanted to, wanted it to be a book that was fun to read. So um, so that was a consideration as well. Well. Uh... Will, as always happens, I, I run out of time. In fact, I've gone over this time that I usually do, but that's, that's great because I think you make a convincing argument that there's a lot of... Uh, these are some music scenes that, that, that did change a lot. You know, punk rock and hip-hop and disco did change the, the music scene, not just in New York, but also around the world. So um, thank you for the book, and uh, thank you for being on our show. It's my pleasure. I really enjoyed it, Matt. Thanks for the interest. Okay, bye. Bye-bye. You've been listening to a conversation with Will Hermes about his book, Love Goes to Buildings on Fire, Five Years in New York That Changed Music Forever, published by Faber and Faber in 2011. Check back with new books and popular music regularly for more interviews with authors of books about popular music. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. Thanks for listening.